podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Reading Girl, we talk about love, divorce, and the 05 Ashes. And so we bring on a guest who has written about all three. My name's Daniel Harris. I'm a writer. Ultimately, I put words next to each other and uh, I make films also. Daniel Harris was convinced when drunk to write on how his life changed during the 05 Ashes. He went through the agony of divorce at the same time he was watching one of the greatest cricket series ever played as a child of the 80s and 90s English team. This podcast is about life, struggles, and Glenn McGrath's ankle. Daniel, what I want to start with you is that sports fans, basically, a lot of them are autobiographical. I realized this recently when I was doing a show with a friend and he literally went through his entire life via England test matches and full-on victories or losses. And that's what your piece in, I think it was originally in The Night Watchman, then went to The Guardian, was all about, was the 05 Ashes and how it sort of clashed with your life. Yeah, it was. And I think if you watch sport, then you have these signposts because the thing about sport is it's a continuum. And it's not just our lives either, because it links us to the lives of the people that came before us and the people that came after us, which is one of the reasons I think we take it so seriously, particularly when elements of that sport are jeopardised. So the way I look at it is that Old Trafford, where Manchester United play, which is my football team, that's the only place that was frequented by me and my grandfather that I never met. And so there are songs that United sing about the Busby Babes. My granddad saw them play. And I like to think that he would have known the the United Calypso, for example, like this song about the Busby Babes that was that came about in the 50s. So it's that kind of linkage that then you will have it passed on to you and you will then pass it on. So the way that you think about sport is not just in terms of it's this other thing that goes on over there that we like, but it's more like a heritage and a family history. And it's because it's the only thing pretty much that you'll never change. You can change your friends, you can change your wife, you can change your religion, but the football team that you have or the sports teams that you have and the presence of sport in your life will always be there and will never not be there. And sometimes you're more obsessed with it than other times, but more or less, if you're obsessed with it, you'll always be obsessed with it as part of being obsessed with yourself. One of the interesting things is, I think, becoming sports writers, you end up being at everything or watching everything and you cover everything. But one of the really interesting things in your piece is how we actually grow up, which is not that way at all. You talk about like, you know, having to run back from school to see test matches played and, you know, missing things because you are, you know, out drunk and all these sorts of things. You do realize that the sport is, it's almost like a soundtrack at a certain point to what you're doing. And that's kind of how you remembered those early years of your life in that piece. Yeah, sometimes it's something and it's literally the only thing that you're doing. And other times it's there with the other things that are being forced upon you. So I've had a moment where I was thinking about this the other day. My wife was looking something up in the dictionary and she's got this big dictionary. And so the dictionary has other things in it besides the definitions of words. And so she happened upon all the capitals in the world and she started quizzing me on capitals and was surprised to discover that I was telling her the capital to Macedonia and the capital of Moldova and this, that and the other. And I was like, why don't you try some Australian states? Or And the reason why I know these things is because of sport. And it gives you not just this idea of something that reminds you about your life, but it gives you an education in lots of other things as well. I pretty much, I'm sure my first understanding of what empire meant came from cricket. And the BBC did these shows called Empire of Cricket. I was like, okay feel like I have a better understanding of this now. I'm not sure it's made me a happier person, 
sport will teach you about the world because it's this one thing that unites across borders all kinds of people of all different denominations and beliefs and more or less nothing like it. I mean, we're seeing it now. Like the IPL is a cricket is a really good example of this. What do you do if you want to speak to billions of people? You get involved in sport. And I think music is really the only other comparable thing, which is why it's interesting that you said it's a soundtrack that touches you in a place that as writers we try and explain with words. <laughs> but if you could explain these things with words, they wouldn't be these things, they'd be words. It's really interesting you talk about the geography. So I worked for Qantas for years. And when I got to the international area, I ended up being the American specialist because I know where the 27 NBA teams were <laughs> from my youth. And you do start to learn all those things. So no, it's, it's very accurate. But you are specifically an English cricket fan. And I say that not to mock you, but because you would have grown up from 1989 until 2005. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because there's a brilliant quote, and I won't embarrass you by reading it out, but essentially every series the England supporters thought life was going to be different, but obviously it wasn't. But they thought maybe it was this time, but obviously it wasn't. I won't go through the full quote, but it is brilliant. But that was your life. I mean, it wasn't until I really moved to the UK, I realized how sort of defeated England cricket fans had been because we just saw them as... I've told this to a bunch of the players. If I see, you know, Butcher, I say, we, you were just comedy figures to us. You weren't even real people. So we didn't even think about the fans. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, I'm actually a little bit older than that. So my <laughs> hatred of English cricket goes back a little bit further than that. I remember <laughs> sitting on the couch as a kid watching the 87 World Cup final. The first cricket I actually remember is I remember Grenge making the double hundred in 1984 and thinking he's batting for a very long time. And then a little bit after that, I think it was the summer of 87, Pakistan came and Javed made a double hundred at the Oval. I was at this summer scheme at the time and there was loads of Pakistani kids there. So they were rinsing us over what was going on in that series. It's one of those things that cricket is a kind of interesting sport in that way because there are so few teams. So it just goes round and round and you take poundings off the same teams over and over again. Whereas other sports are a little bit different usually. Like it's not, quite as closed. And I was thinking about this in a different context the other day because uh, Liverpool won the Premier League title and people were saying to Liverpool supporters, well, Liverpool supporters are banging on about 30 years of hurt. And in 30 years of hurt, well, actually they've won the FA Cup a few times and they've won the Champions League. Well, it's actually, it's not like that because what happens is if you support a big club and they're not winning, you can almost guarantee that what they would in fact be doing is watching their biggest rivals win everything in sight because that's how it works. That's how rivalry works. And I think that's how the Ashes worked as well. It's not just that England were crap at cricket. It's Australia was smashing them. And there's something very different about getting hammered by Australia to getting hammered by West Indies. You get hammered by West Indies and part of you thinks, eh, quite enjoyed that in some way. Get hammered by Pakistan. Like, how can you not love the Pakistan cricket team? I've seen England get absolutely walloped by Pakistan. And part of you appreciates the pleasure and I think it's also one of the charms of cricket is that in cricket, it's easier to celebrate your team getting the kicking than it is in other sports. And I don't know if that's just the nature of cricket where you're sort of sitting having a picnic with your mates for three days or I'm not exactly sure what it is. Or maybe it's just English cricket where basically you are the bad guys and you know it. And everyone else, the good guys, so you, you want to win, but you sort of celebrate it when you don't. But yeah, long answer to those hidings of, of Australia were there was some where you thought, it will be better this time, and it wasn't. And there are other times where you think it definitely won't be better this time, and it wasn't. <laughs> and <laughs> there, are different, there are different qualities 
in those hidings. I mean, the 89 one that we started with was the one where you thought, not even it'll be different. You thought it'd be the same. <laughs> and it wasn't. 2005, so at this point, you're a thoroughly depressed England fan with slight hopes of something is going to happen. Bangladesh played the first series in that summer, and you talk about any piece, you don't really remember much of that because your wife was leaving you at that time. <laughs> yes, she was. That, I don't want that to sound like I've just brought that up randomly. That's the piece. <laughs> That's what I was writing about, yeah. It's one of those things, actually. It's not something I ever thought I was going to write about. I'd signed to do a book, which I never ended up not writing because... The money people, the publisher and I, in the end, had different opinions about what this book should be. But we had signed. I was doing the book. So the editor and I went out for a, a few drinks that turned into more than a few drinks. And my name's Charlotte, actually. She used to work for Doomsbury. And we got on really well. Oh, yeah. together. So we were out. And she was also the publisher of Night Watchman, this cricket periodical. And she said to me, you need to write for Night Watchman. What would you like to write? And we'd had a shitload to drink. So I had this piece in my head, but I didn't ever think I was going to write it. And so I said, well, I've got this piece and it's about getting divorced in the 2005 ashes. But I assumed because we'd had three bottles of wine by that point that she would forget. Charlotte doesn't forget things. No, she didn't. And then the next morning, it was like, I've got a headache, need to do that piece. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I found, as I wrote it, that writing ordinarily, and I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who won't agree with me when I say this, but writing is fucking painful. The feeling of having written is magical when it's good. But actual writing is difficult and stressful and hard and painful and laborious and slow and all those things. And I actually sat down to write this piece. It wasn't like that. I mean, maybe it's just because I felt like I knew what the answer was. And mm. I ge in general, you kind of, I look at writing as a puzzle and I will solve it in the end. And I know in the back of my mind that I will get to what the right answer is but you've got to move a lot of pieces around in your head and on the page in order to get there. Whereas this one, it felt like I knew it so well that I read it really quickly. It's not usually like that, but yeah, I did discover that my wife, that my wife has been in me around the time that England played Bangladesh, which is kind of like the premise of the piece that you remember the way that your life goes according to what sport was going on at the time. Because sport, again, is that thing, it's omnipresent, and it's always in your mind. And one of the things like that is making me happy at the moment even is that I've got something to think about in quiet moments or dull moments or when I can't speak or when I'm on my own that we didn't have for those few months where there was literally no sport. And I hadn't really thought about that too much, that well, I miss watching sport, I miss going to sport, but I hadn't really thought about how much of my waking hours are spent thinking about sport until sport went away and then came back. And suddenly it's like, yeah, like I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking about what would England's attack be for the beginning of the series? Which I guess in a way is like a microcosm of what's gone on in the sports writing world, where instead of lying in bed thinking, what's my greatest ever England cricket team? Because all you've got is nostalgia. I'm back mm. to thinking about the present. And I think that's sort of what the piece was about, about the way that sport and the present and the past and the future all intertwined in our lives. But yeah. My wife left me around signing and play Bangladesh. <laughs> There's a really interesting thing that you write. So at the same time, Malcolm Glazer was buying United. So even before the Ashes sort of got your attention, sport was there. And you talk about a conversation you have with a friend about how essentially your obsession was sort of part of the reason that your wife perhaps was uh, leaving you. <laughs> 
But I've got this working theory that most of the best sports writers are very obsessive from people who are probably on some sort of autism spectrum all the way through to just garden variety obsessives. And it's kind of what makes good sports writers find all those extra little details that perhaps other people don't look at. I'm sure that helps you, but at that stage of that relationship and you're bringing up little facts, or is it just you're in front of the TV too much or listening to radio too much or what was it? No, 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 it's not that. I mean, I think the obsession's an interesting one because I uh, think about this sometimes when like the Olympics happen or whatever and you see people who aren't sports writers writing about sport. Sometimes that works and other times it doesn't work. And the reason why sometimes it doesn't work is because you might be able to turn a phrase, but I think that, I've been writing about sport professionally for however many years, but I feel like I've been doing the work to be a sports writer literally for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And it's those little things that are in your mind that you remember about because you were equally fascinated by sport then as you are now. And you're preparing by like, because you're constantly thinking about sport, watching sport, comparing sport to other sport and understanding sport and absorbing this whole fucking world of sport in a non-specific way as well so I've always been like that and I've always wanted to go and watch live sport so I guess we're really talking about this on a very practical how did your wife leave you level I was attending sports events when she was finding her next husband and <laughs> I don't say that in a bitter or accusatory way you ask the question I'm relating the fact like that is the fact on a Sunday, she met someone at work who she got on really well with. They became friends. And on a Sunday, I'd often be playing football or going to watch football or on bank holiday and just those things. So that's like a really practical way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is we got married when we were 21, 22, and neither of us knew anything. We've been together for a long time by then, but neither of us knew anything. And made what was indisputably a wrong decision. And it wasn't like one of these, and I know divorces can operate like this, where the people hate each other, they end up screaming and shouting at each other and do a lot of arguing and there's a lot of rancor and a lot of bitterness. It wasn't like that. Ultimately, she fell out of love with me and fell in love with someone else. And that's what happened. And the football was, I guess it provided a vehicle for her to have a lot of time without me. Number one, she could be thinking, well, this guy is much more interested in this than that. And I would have to say that is probably true. Like, I loved her, but I didn't understand what you had to do in order to sustain a relationship. And I didn't understand what I needed to do in order to sustain that particular relationship. And so I didn't. I sustained my own obsession with sport and attending football matches in particular, because ultimately the cricket doesn't come every week yeah. in the same way that football does. And it's related to other things. It's also really quite related to writing as well, actually, because we got married so young and it's like, right, we need to find a job, Sunshine. And as I talk about in the piece, I allowed myself to be press ganged into going to become a lawyer. Law is sort of the final refuge of the art student, but actually law is not really for art students. Law is for scientists and mathematicians. It's for people that have grasp of detail and attention to detail and it's very procedural particularly in the corporate field and I was entirely unsuited to any of this bullshit and I say bullshit in like a friendly way I mean it's not really bullshit but it was bullshit to me and so I was doing this job and I was spent two years at law school and then I was in my first year as a trainee lawyer and I fucking hated it I hated it because it was hateful like the environment was hateful and that I say on behalf of every single person who's ever been a trainee lawyer is hateful 
the atmosphere at work, the demands at work where this didn't happen to me because I was so crap at it and no one wanted to give me any work to do. There's people who are like, you'd be on your way home at three or four in the morning in a taxi and you might get a call saying, come back. We're not finished, actually. Like, it, it's very intense. It's very unfriendly. It's very impersonal. I hated it. And I also, so I hated it just for the reasons that it's hateful, but I also hated it because I had this other desire and I couldn't see a way out. And it turned out that the way out was getting divorced. And my ex-wife very generously found me a way out by dumping me. And that meant, ah, fuck, I need to be a lawyer anymore. I felt like it was obvious. So we never really discussed it until it was after the end where I was like, look, I feel like I've got to do this thing. And I feel like I have some aptitude to do this thing. It's not me sitting here saying... I'm better than other people, so I don't need to get involved in the corporate rat race, which was what a lot of the people that we knew at the time were doing. It wasn't really about that. It looked down on people that do this. Everyone does or should do what they feel is right or what they want to do, what is right for them. The reason why it's bothering me isn't because I'm in this disgusting job that is disgusting. It's that I have this overwhelming desire and necessity to be writing stuff. I think she probably didn't get that, and it wound her up. And... I mean, ultimately, she fell in love with someone else and communed with someone else on a more profound level to the one in which she communed with me. I mean, it's really, that is the truth. And uh, I mean, I know you've just spent 10 minutes listening to me and you know that that sounds, fuck me, that is impossible. <laughs> How could anyone fall out of love with you? Oh, man. And <laughs> also, I think that like, we've been together such a long time. And when we got together when we were 16 and she was a very good girl and I was a badly behaved boy, I guess. I was in trouble at school and I was in trouble here and I was in trouble there and I like getting drunk and I like getting high and all these things. Although like there was always a little thing like the person I marry doesn't like doing these things. And it's just like, well, like, do, I do like doing those things. And here we are. Um, to me, it's just like, are you kind? Do you treat people nicely? Our relationship wasn't quite like that. You get to a point that you're basically thoroughly depressed. You've moved out of living with her. The ashes start and you watch them but you're not really engaged in the ashes at the start, are you? Um, you talked briefly about, you know, when England had that good morning at Lords, probably almost ready to buy back in. And then, of course, McGrath comes in and sort of ruins that in the afternoon. At that stage, it's almost like the first test is sort of playing into your depression a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you kind of jump on it, really, because it's like, I need this distraction. That's one of the great joys of sport, particularly the, one of the joys of cricket and test cricket. It takes place when it takes place, because... As I said, like, I'm in this fucking horrendous job that is giving me agita all over the place, just like, just like being there. Like, I literally remember the first day I was in the job and the first piece of work I got to do. My supervisor says to me, I'd like you to do this. I had to go to the toilet before I did it because I was going to cry. I'm not a crier, really. Like, I, happy things make me cry more than sad things, I would say. And um, at that point, I felt like I hadn't really cried for years. And I'm not even sure I, I didn't cry very much even when, like, the whole divorce thing then happened subsequent to that. But... What's amazing about Test Cricket is it's a distraction during the working day and it goes on for days. That was one of the great things about that summer is that the ODI stuff set up the Test stuff and it doesn't really work like that anymore. What you end up with is, I mean, I love the Midovers Cricket, but it's hard to separate the matches one from the other and they tend not to mean that much in the general scheme of things because they come after the main event. Whereas that summer, they were setting up animosity, basically. And... Because you've got one team that's looking, trying to assert themselves, and you've got the other team that's looking to just remind everyone of actually the order of things. And so you're already kind of amped for it because England was so good in the limit over stuff. And then the test starts, and it's just like, I feel like I need this. This is here for me. 
then it then plays out the same way that we've seen it play out again. And it's very hard when the opposition just have these absolute champions. That's one of um, Australian cricket's great gifts to English language is the word champion. I actually wrote something about Joy of Six. I, the Guardian has this Joy of Six column, and I did Joy of Six champions, kind of looking at what the word champion means. Because in England, the champion is the person that wins the trophy or the team that wins the trophy. And I think in Australian sport, that's not what champion means. Champion means someone who's really, really fucking good at something. So McGrath is a champion. You can define someone who didn't win anything as a champion, according to the Australian definition. And that Australian team, I mean, you look at it now and you think, like, ultimately, there were loads of great players, but there was basically three, I think, that were amongst the best we've ever seen. Ponting, McGrath and Warren. And McGrath was the one, I think, sort of found hardest to take to as a bloke. <laughs> Although I wonder if in reality he is the best bloke of the three. Also, you have no idea the complications of the word champion within Australian culture because it can also be used as an insult. You know about this. As in, like, say, all right, champ, pat on the head. As in, you're a champion, almost a small sea wave, if you know what I mean. So it's very complicated. You miss Gilchrist in the three ultimate champion. He was quite good. I want to go into the McGrath standing on the ball thing and Edge Baston a little bit, but I want to tell you a story from a friend of mine, another cricketer actually, big cricket fan, who he must have been about 2022, 20, and he just started being a teacher in 1992 in Australia, and uh, he had tickets to see Nirvana, and it was his first full week of, of ever teaching a class, and he got to Friday afternoon, and he just went, I can't. I'm not cut out to be a teacher. I'm so depressed. I need to go home and whatever. I don't need to see this band. And of course, we all know what happened with Nirvana from then on in, basically. I think they literally broke the next week, I think, as the world's biggest band. Because I think they broke while they were still in Australia. You have your own version of that, which is you're in this funk. Everything's going wrong. You hate your job. You hate life. But you actually have a ticket to see a day of the ashes. But it wasn't just any day. What day of the ashes did you have a ticket to see? I had a ticket for the last day at Edgbaston. What I love about it is that <laughs> when you watch the highlights now and Richie says, I think it's Richie, even though this test may only last a couple of balls, there's not an empty seat in the house. Yeah, there is. And that <laughs> is an unbroken ticket stuff for <laughs> Edgbaston. And for years, I carried that around. I used to have this, still do, have a record bag that I used to put my shit in when I used to have to go to places. And don't do that so often anymore. Go to places. And I used to keep it in my bag, always, to remind me not to be such a dickhead ever again. And it started to break, so now I just keep it on my desk to remind myself. But, yeah, what happened was um, a group of mates I've been going to cricket with for years, there's got tickets available for the last day, and let's go. And this was with a group of uni mates, and I guess I live in Jewish North London, and my uni mates have no desire or need to live in Jewish North London, so they're mainly living in the South. So... I was getting a lift with a friend from Jewish North London who was also going, but his wife was extremely heavily pregnant. And so on the Saturday evening, he says to me, look, like, I said I'd give you a lift, so if you insist, I'll still give you a lift. But otherwise, it's causing me a lot of aggravation, this test match. I'm not going to go. So I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm feeling so miserable here mm. that if I go, I'm still going to be miserable. So I may as well be miserable without the aggravation of having to get on the coach, go to Victoria early doors in the morning, get on the coach, spend like an hour boozing with my mates, then feel more miserable whilst feeling having felt miserable all along, and then get on the coach and go back to the misery that I've left. 
And it just, like, the whole thing just seems miserable and stressful and difficult. And it's weird because when, like, the whole divorce thing was at its height, I did still go to games. There's two games of the football season left, I think. I went to Southampton away, and I hated it. It's kind of hard to divorce from the fact that United had just been bought by the Glazers and it's potentially ruinous takeover. And I knew that I was in trouble because I'd always said that if the Glazers took over United, I'd give up my season tickets and I'd stop going. And then what happened after that was, there was a game after that was the FA Cup final and United dominated Arsenal, couldn't score and lost on penalties. And at the time, it's like, well, these are the things in my life that I thought were forever. United and my marriage, they suddenly take on this very new shape. So... I decided not to go, basically, because I just felt like, what is the point in undergoing all this grief just to sit there and be miserable when I could just sit and be miserable on the couch? <laughs> and the weird thing about it was, it was just like so out of character. As I said, like when I was miserable, still went to football, even though I was miserable. And I am generally someone who is very rare that if you ask me to do something, I will say, no, I can't be asked. Like if it's worth doing, I will make it happen because... I don't know, maybe it's like an only child kind of syndrome. I don't know that I'm used to like, I'm, I psychoanalyze myself. It's all right. I'm an only child as well. Find shit to do to <laughs> amuse myself. So that like, if you're at home and someone's like, should we do this? You're like, fucking yes. I can't get away from my parents. I've got to get away from this room, whatever it is. I mean, as a kid, like my parents say that um, I never wanted to sleep during the day. I mean, I can only imagine how much they must have hated me now that I'm a parent myself. <laughs> um, but because I guess I had a lot of energy and felt like I didn't want to miss out on something. If you go to bed, if you go to sleep, nothing's going to happen. I actually now see my daughter now, like she's I've got some six-year-old daughter and she's like, daddy, I don't want to go to bed. Sleeping's boring. And at the same time, I'm like reasoning with her because it's just like, I need to watch television. You must go to sleep. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I totally feel that. I feel it myself. I feel it still now that when you go to bed, like that's the end of the possibility for fun mm. in a day. And I'm trying to extend that. So, yeah, like me saying I'm not coming, I mean, I felt it very deeply. And while I was saying it, I knew that, like, this is not really what I do. And the mates I went with, like, they didn't just say, okay, like, they, they fucking hassled me over the evening. And I, I was just like, no, I'm not doing it. Obviously, that test goes quite well for England, in case people have forgotten how it went. By Old Trafford and Trent Bridge, not only are you starting to enjoy the cricket a lot more, possibly because England's won, but you've also met someone else and you're in love. It's almost like during the Ashes, you become a completely different person from the first test to the fifth test. I would say, like, I'm back enjoying life. Whether I'm in love at that point is um, a very interesting question. Well, interesting to me and definitely very interesting to my wife, who, if I asked her about it, she would definitely say that I was. Like, my wife and <laughs> I, like, we had met at work where we became good friends. We met when I was married. So, like, there was no love affair at that point. But I guess she was someone who was there for me to talk to at a time when I needed someone to talk to. And perhaps I needed someone to talk to who wasn't someone I'd always known. I don't know. It was different to the friends I'd grown up with. And most of my friends are people I've been friendly with at that point for like 20, 25 years. It's also the fact that um, my wife, I felt like, had some level of emotional intelligence that I found very comforting at that time. But I would say, like, whether I was in love with her, looking back now, I mean, yeah, I guess I probably was, but it definitely wasn't something that I had the emotional space to understand or acknowledge at that point. 
So yeah, like, I mean, we became very close friends, but we didn't become officially in love with each other as boyfriend and girlfriend until three years later, with one failed effort prior to then, when I guess emotionally I probably wasn't ready. After Edgerston and then as we move on to Old Trafford and Trent Bridge, I'm becoming more of my old self. And it's funny, really, because like when bad things happen, you often look back at them and remember quite a lot of laughing that takes place. Because I think partly you're just doing a lot of sitting around and talking. And invariably, when you sit around talking with your friends, you laugh. And there was a lot of drinking and a lot of getting high. And similarly, those circumstances also encourage you to laugh. And I think that it was always in my upbringing and amongst the people that I knew that there was not really very much that can't be laughed about. So also the whole divorce thing, like I couldn't fail to see the funny side. The way I found out about it, like the fact that my wife basically was seeing someone else was just like, was like something out of EastEnders. Like I was looking for some spare change for the train uh, and the tube to go to work. I looked in her bag and I found a note to self basically out like dumping me. And it was just like, you can't help but be like, dum, 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 and hear EastEnders <laughs> music. And like, yeah, like even those periods where you're at your lowest, like still kind of retain that kernel of who you are and appreciating that life is pretty funny. But yeah, I, I would say like by the time of the third and the fourth tests, I'm just kind of more back to uh, being myself. If Edgerton had been the fourth test, I'd have been there. Weird question. All this goes on and your life is in such a state of flux. McGrath doesn't stand on the ball. Huh. <laughs> how much, I mean, I suppose my question is, how much were you able to enjoy the fact that something was going right in your life? And that I know you've said that you handled it pretty well, but you still were quite depressed and, and you talked about it. I didn't say I handled it well. I mean, I, I, would never, <laughs> I would never say to anyone, actually, funnily enough, I had this conversation, I think, while watching Flintoff's Morning at the Oval about handling things well. Like, I'd been out all night, had somehow got to where I was getting to. And so we were talking and someone said you handled it well. And one of my other friends was like, there's no such thing as handling things well. And I agree, like you handle things in the way that you handle them, in the way that your internal chemistry forces you to handle them, really. And it's not really a well and a badly thing. I think you just do whatever you have to do. Whatever the circumstance forces you to do, you do. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that I handled it well, and I definitely wouldn't dispute the fact that I was exceedingly miserable during that period. And I think that as much as England winning, which obviously was amazing, it was also the fact that it was a contest. So that if McGrath doesn't stand on that ball and Australia win that test, which it's fair to posit they might have done. Had that not happened. And Michael Vaughan has got a great line about when they saw that happen. He said, um, the low fives went around the dressing room. <laughs> and I just like the fact that it's a low five as well, because no one knows. There's something surreptitious about it. Surreptitious that you can't really celebrate someone getting injured. Yes, you can. And it's going McGrath. And also that we can't start giving it like the Curly Ambroses, like the high tens, because there's a game of cricket to play here and we might still lose. So it's just a little, a little low five around the dressing room. But I think in retrospect, it's because by the time England won the Ashes, I was sort of better. Had England not won the Ashes, I feel like I might have handled it but what I really needed during the period when I was not feeling better was a contest that had the possibility of England winning and it was not a procession it was so every day it felt like every ball at the time was an event it was intense I think the only cricket that I've seen England play since then that was like that was when they lost to South Africa 
where it was just like every ball, he felt like the whole crowd went like this. And I know there's an audio here. I'm leaning forward. The moment of people who can't see my grinning physic, every ball, you felt like everyone sort of leant forward in their seats. And this series was like that, basically, apart from the first test that became a non-event on about day one, um, that this was everything was an event. It was just like that, because it's about the motor and momentum and joy that sport brings to life, that your own life is quite dull, usually. But there are these people out there that feel like they're part of your life creating worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the most important thing here is that perhaps Glenn McGrath saved your life. I think we can go that far. <laughs> Tell, how does it feel from an Australian perspective? Because like, I'm interested also, like one, and I, I guess we're looking at the slightly bigger picture here, because that was obviously the turning point in the series. Without that, England, England mm. really don't win the Ashes. And it's interesting with Australia, and there are other sportsmen like this as well, like Roger Federer is one, Phil Taylor, the dart player, the Hungarian football team in 1954, who are amazing teams who dominated everyone and everything for generations, but the best thing that they played in, they lost. If you were to say, what do you remember the great Australian team for? What was their greatest series? I mean, the India series, obviously amazing, Mm. uh, the VVS series, but it would be this one, and they got beaten. And in mm. some ways, I find like it almost elevates them higher because that is what it took to beat them. So for me, I had a very interesting story with the Australian team. So I'm a Victorian cricket fan, right? Yeah. And we are basically set up to believe that we should be running cricket and that New South Wales are throwing all these young players into the team and ruining things. So I almost had this sort of argumentative feel with the Australian team, except the bowlers. The bowlers, I was always on side with. So if I went to a game, I always expected the batsman to fail. The funny thing is people don't look back on this a lot, but if you look back, the Australian team weren't making 600 and 700 that often when they were batting from 95 through to, well, when did they get bad? About 2007, when the bowlers left. There was a lot of failures. Like Steve Wall would save them over and over again. Their tail would save them a lot. And then more often than not, They didn't make a lot of big totals in one-day cricket either, even though they dominated it. So for me, it was always this belief that the bowlers would do it, everything. And the 2003 World Cup was sort of the epitome of that for me. (laughs) Andy Pickle, I remember it. And do you know what? That was my first wedding anniversary. And do you know how I spent it? I spent it schlepping my wife to watch Manchester United lose to Liverpool in the League Cup final at Cardiff. Um, That was how he spent that first wedding anniversary, where I basically had to take her with because it was like, you're not either in a final and we're playing Liverpool, I've got to go, but it's our anniversary, so I've got to take you. And on the way there, we listened to England throwing it away and Andy Bickle having the most unbelievable day out that you couldn't possibly fathom before it happened. Yeah, and so my whole belief system as a human being was around the fact that Australian bowlers were superior to everyone else. And so McGrath getting injured, and like Gillespie was my guy, Watching Gillespie when he was clearly a year and a half past his best and shouldn't be out there. And I was suddenly like... Like watching your dad get beaten up. Yeah, and I couldn't really understand what was happening. But at this point, I'm basically not a cricket analyst, but a cricket journalist in waiting, as as you said before, we train ourselves a whole lot. And I was like, there's nothing in the numbers here that say that England should be doing better than Australia. This is a ridiculous situation. So it was a very, very weird one for me. That whole series almost felt like I watched it with an out-of-body experience. And I don't remember it the same way that England fans remember it because I was so angry the whole time. It's just like, how dare they even be in this contest? Now, final test, the Oval. You've got a great story about that. I'm going to get this wrong because um, my Hebrew isn't great. But Mata Lekel Adam is a phrase that you wrote in the piece. I'm assuming that's Hebrew, is it? Or is it Yiddish? 
which means she is permitted to every man. This is what happened. Um, I, I actually allowed myself a day off on the first day of the Old Trafford test. I went to work and I suddenly thought to myself, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, it's the first day of the test. And I had this supervisor who absolutely hated me. I was so crap at my job and she hated incompetence to the point where I was so crap at my job that when I had my appraisal with her, if you think about it, it's a grid. So down the one, there's like a list of qualities or attributes or whatever. And going across, there's good, bad, indifferent, whatever. And she'd given me the bottom mark for every single mark. So when I, when I had my appraisal with her, I said, um, you appear to have given me the bottom one for every single grade. And she's like, yeah, I have. I thought that's what you deserved. And I said, fair enough. But there's just one I want to query, which is uh, robustness and accepting criticism. Like you've given me quite a lot of criticism and I feel like I've been quite robust in accepting it. And she said, no, Daniel, I thought carefully about every possible grade and every possible box. So I said, all right then. So why is it that there is a vertical line linking your ticks in the bottom box that shows very clearly that you've just gone down the page? <laughs> anyway, so she hated me. So I said, I'm not feeling well. And she was like, I'll get your cab, more or less. So I went home and I watched Vaughan's 100 um, when I was meant to be at work. But for the Oval, I was concerned because... Getting to the last day of the Oval, I need to watch it. So I booked to do my official Jewish divorce. The civil divorce was done, but we're Jewish. So we had to got married in the synagogue. And, actually, we didn't get married in the synagogue. We got married in the hotel, but like under Jewish religious authority. And in order to get divorced, there has to be a particular amount of time that has to elapse. It's very technical. There are literally books and books and books of people having conversations over thousands of years about how you do this. So I arranged that I would go to the religious authority to get divorced on the final day of the ashes. And the reason why I did this was because then I would have the day off work. I obviously told work that I needed two days because I knew that they weren't going to be like, no, you don't. You need one day. But anyway, the first of those two days was um, the final day of the Oval. So I was watching it, getting high with the friends, I guess, and um, as you do. And I nipped off to do like the first bit early on, like I think before play started. And then you have to go back because so that you just have time to reconsider. It's obviously... These rules were designed when people lived in the same villages and divorces were much less common. And yeah, what else are we going to do? It was more that kind of thing. So, so I arranged to go back at lunch, but it overran. And I ended up saying to the guys, like, look, like, there's some cricket going on here. They were basically had absolutely no interest whatsoever in Harris getting to see the end of Harris's ashes. And so I basically, I missed KP going mad because I took a wrong turning on my way back and got stuck in traffic that meant I missed most of it but even though it's only like 10 minutes from where I was living at the time but they have this little bit where they're always asking questions like what is um they have to say what place it is and, the, and I remember the rabbi that actually it's a Diane who is a very senior rabbi said to me we're writing here London on the Thames do you know why we're writing London on the Thames and I said yes and he said why and I was like well I did you asked me I said I know and you definitely know I need to go and see what's going on in the cricket and we end up, and the reason why it's London on the Thames is that you shouldn't think it was London somewhere else, so that you would know exactly that this was precisely this divorce. And then I eventually get back, and I get to go and see the very end of the ashes, having enjoyed a quick chuckle to myself, obviously, when they say that your wife is mutalachal adam, permissible to all men, which obviously isn't true, because my wife is very happy with her now new husband. They've been married for many years and have, I'm sure, several children. So... I guess it felt like a fitting ending because I think ultimately when we're talking about all the things we've been talking about and marriage and sport, what we're really talking about is we're talking about love. And 
what I needed at that point and what, I, what the Ashes series gave me was some kind of receptacle for love. Like you're in a relationship with someone. And if it ends, even if you're the one who ends it, not that I would know about that, but I feel like that would be the case, that you have this love inside you as a human being and no receptacle for that love. And as a parent, it's just like you can like give it to your children and give it to your wife. As a, but at that point, it's just like, I was in love with this person. And now... I mean, I'm still in love with this person, except I don't actually love them in some way because it's quite hard to give love to something that doesn't love you. It's just like in a marriage, it's like, how can I love you if you don't love me back? But I can't, except I do. It's like quite a strange paradox, maybe. Conundrum, paradox. And then, so what you end up, what I ended up doing anyway is you, I poured my love into that Ashes series. And that Ashes series was everything that I love about sport and felt like the love that I was giving to it, it was returning to me. And obviously it ended nicely with the ultimate show of love by my team winning. But beyond that, it was caring for me at a point when I needed to be cared for and I needed that to care for me. That particular thing, like this thing that has been a lifelong obsession, the sport itself, but it's also, it's not just the sport itself, I don't think, it's the characters and the personalities of people that play it like sometimes you have really good football teams and you're just like even if they represent your own club but can I, I i can't necessarily get on board with any of these people as individuals whereas with those england and australia teams there was interesting fascinating different individuals and the way that they meshed together against each other and with each other felt like a different form of love and felt like it was giving me the love that I needed at that point and allowing me to discharge the love that I felt to it. Daniel Harris, thank you very much for coming on. <laughs> okay, thank you for having me. Gosh, that was, uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Daniel Harris on Twitter. I'm usually there as well. Please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, everywhere, really. Just help us out if you could. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. Thank you to all of those. And if you can pop over there and help out, please do. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston does things with your ears. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.